I have four younger brothers and the five of us just argued all the time, like talk shit to each other. It's like the greatest training of all time for everything I do. Go on television, like Kevin O'Leary wants to, you know, chirp. Like I'm like, dude, my brothers will like eat you for lunch. Like I've been training for this moment for, you know, 30 years. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, DJ DeFi, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Anthony Pompliano of The Pomp Podcast, one of the most popular podcasts on business, investing, and crypto. Pomp is way more impressive than I expected. He had an extremely successful career in the Army. He's built and sold numerous companies, and he ran product and growth teams at Facebook. Plus, he manages a portfolio of over $500 million in early-stage tech companies. Most notably, he's super bullish on Bitcoin and crypto, which might be annoying to you, but it's really fascinating to learn about in this conversation. If you've ever wanted to learn about how Pomp operates at such a high level and built his influence in the crypto space, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Number one, the importance of momentum. Number two, why you should put all your eggs in one basket. And number three, how to develop your unique voice on the internet. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, make sure you're subscribed to AppSumo.com, the number one digital marketplace for entrepreneurs. That's AppSumo.com and my YouTube show. That's YouTube.com slash OKDork. Don't miss out. YouTube.com slash OKDork. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener TCW Falcon, wherever that is. They love reviewing tons of great knowledge bombs each week. Thanks for sharing such valuable information, exclamation point. Thank you so much, homie, for that feedback. I love every single one of you guys. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. I check every single one of them. I just rode down from Santa Cruz to here. I'm in Venice Beach right now. And then I rode down. And then like day three, like my ass was on fire. And so I needed like, honestly, I need a few days to just rest too. Having that level of that volume is going to be pretty high. Yeah, it's crazy. Did you do crazy stuff like that in the military? I never rode a bicycle, but uh, we did plenty of dumb shit that, uh, you know, I I told my wife one time, I said, uh, I'm pretty sure I ran a marathon before. And she's like, what do you mean you're pretty sure? And I was like, well, like, there's multiple times where we just ran really, really fucking far for like hours. And uh, they never told us like how far it was. But I'm pretty damn sure that was like a fucking marathon, you know, four hours, like, you know, it's close. I don't know, 20 miles, 25 miles. What's the difference if you don't know how far you went? It still fucking sucks. Do you think that everyone should join the military or at least go through something like that? I think that everyone should have the choice. Like, let people do whatever they want. Yeah, I guess I was wondering, though, just more from like a growth perspective. Like, do you think like as a like how it changed you? I think everyone's experience in the military is even different, right? So I was fortunate in that uh, I deployed when I was younger, uh, 20. I had the opportunity to go to a number of leadership schools. I also was able to just be put in situations where like it required experience and leadership. And so you learn the good and bad simply by you know what you did. And so that's very different experience than somebody who goes in and is a supply sergeant or maybe doesn't even become a sergeant, right? They're just kind of like a, somebody who works in the supply room. They may not have the same experience. So maybe it's not nearly as formative for them as it is for you know, somebody like me. I was wondering for like the leadership perspective too, right? Like organization leadership, like the amount of skills, like military is like, and like the the whole security is like, it's like one of the best organizations in the world. And just like, how do you organize that many people and figure out all this stuff? It's like so fascinating. I can't think of a better one. And also I think it's one of the best training organizations in the world in terms of, it's not just about how effective are we on the battlefield? But how many people come out and end up being uh, effective in terms of um, their leadership skills 
think after, I think maybe it was Vietnam. Uh, I may have this data wrong, but 86% of Fortune 500 companies were run by a veteran. And some of that is just because so many people deployed, right? Like just naturally, like you need people to come back and run companies and just happens to be a big percentage of the population was a veteran. But also there's this element of you're trained to lead teams, you're trained to lead big organizations. And so the difference between running, let's say, a, a company or a battalion and leading a large corporation from a pure leadership standpoint, there's not much difference. Like, yeah, the people are a little bit different. You might have to use some different tactics or whatever, but it's still kind of communication, organization, you know, motivation, all that type of stuff. By the way, how are you, man? I'm great. <laughs> I got no complaints. If you had to complain about one thing. I had to complain about one thing. I think that there are certain politicians in the uh, United States that are completely incompetent and have been exposed over the last 12 months. I'm not complaining about the politicians because they were elected by the people. I'm complaining that our country's best and brightest are heavily disincentivized from wanting to go into politics because it's just an absolute nightmare. I think a lot about like, think of your smartest friends. What are they doing? They're like trying to go make money, right? They're like trying to like go build businesses or go to Wall Street or crypto or technology or like whatever. But like the world or at least like our country's best and brightest aren't trying to be teachers or politicians or, you know, like those types of skills. And so like maybe the incentive system is just like really screwed up. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about that as well. It's like, who are the smartest people I know? And like, are there any in politics? And it's like, absolutely not. I'm like, well, who's there then? How does someone go from a sergeant to being the leading crypto influencer? Is that what you would call yourself? Uh, by the way, I'm a subscriber to your newsletter. I, I give you money. I got the $50 deal. Okay. I'm a deal guy, but uh, I did buy it. <laughs> it's like, that's a jump. It was very sequential, right? Military started companies, then uh, ran product and growth teams at uh, Facebook and stuff, and they started investing. And I think most people see the online audience and uh, kind of all the distribution and all that. But majority of my time is spent investing. You know, people, I think, see the podcast or the newsletter or the Twitter account or whatever. But that's all just like a means to an end of, uh, of investing. How did that become true? Is that always the plan? Like when you're a sergeant, you're like, hey, I want to leave and get involved in tech and then be an investor? No, I'm one of these people that like, I just do whatever I feel like doing in that day. And so like, there's a chance I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, ah, you know what? Like, I don't want to write it anymore. Okay, I'm done. Or, you know, hey, this podcast is annoying now. Okay, I'm done. Or, you know what? I'm tired of uh, searching for new deals. I'm done investing. That's literally how it happens. And so the same is true of like, rather than stopping activities, starting activities. So, you know, one day I literally was like, I feel like I'm going to write. And I just started writing and I've written every single day since. I'm a big believer in momentum. And like when you have momentum, it keeps you going. But uh, when you stop momentum, like game over, it's like nearly impossible to kind of restart. I feel like that way on the bike a lot. Like when I stop for a break to get back on and get it going in my leg, it's like virus just like slow down, maybe even slow down a little bit and keep going. It's way better. I guess one thing for you on that is like, you don't seem like a quitter to me at all. Like obviously you do, you know, you have the toughness and the grit from the army and probably in general. So how do you decide like, hey, this is actually something I'm done with versus like, yo, I'm going to go through this pain? It's like a happiness thing for me. I pretty much do things uh, as long as I can and I'm having fun doing them. Then when I stop having fun doing them, I just go do something else. So it's like less about like running away from something. It's more like running to something. What are some examples of that for you? New York. It was a ton of fun. And then it wasn't. And so I moved. Like, <laughs> you know, like, and by the way, like, it's not lost on me that like, I'm fortunate to have the ability to do that. And, you know, kind of all, all the elements that go into doing that. 100%. 
it's just kind of like uh, I didn't enjoy something anymore, so I like changed the situation. I think the same thing in terms of I used to invest in every industry, and then over time I just realized like no, like ninety five percent of my mental energy is spent thinking about this one thing. Why am I doing all this other stuff? Just because like that's what people want me to do. Like I don't care. Like I'm just gonna go focus on this and like spend all my time here. Hindsight, like sure, it was a really smart decision. But literally, it was just because like that's where I was having the most fun and the most enjoyment. So I just learned over time, like just do the shit that you enjoy, and like who cares what anyone thinks? Because I think on your on your Twitter bio, it was like you you've done a hundred million dollars in investments. It's uh, over two hundred now, but yeah, yeah. I wish it was five hundred or a billion as much as I possibly could. <laughs> where, where did that money come from originally when you started investing? Was it all your own cash? Did you go raise from other people? Most of it uh, over the years has been outside capital. You know, the thought process was like early on, it was kind of walk before you run. So it was, you know, individuals, uh, kind of really small checks, uh, kind of $100,000 or so, then eventually a couple of bigger checks, then small institutions, and then eventually ended up raising a, a very large fund uh, in uh, partnership with a, uh, a Wall Street hedge fund where uh, two public pension funds, an endowment, a hospital system, et cetera, all invested. It's like anything, right? You, you start small, you uh, build the momentum, and it eventually gets bigger and bigger over time. And then by the time you get to the big stuff, people are like, wow, how did you do this? Like overnight success. And you're like, well, <laughs> let, let, let me tell you about like the other stories that uh, maybe will discourage you from trying to go do this. <laughs> do you think for a lot of people, they should attempt to build some type of personal brand around it? Like how much? Because I, I was thinking as you were, you know, as you were talking about this, like, wow, having being out there publicly has also made that probably easier to, to raise funds as well as the success you had. I think that the entire world now is built on these brands, right? And so if you think through what I end up doing, I just built a massive distribution platform by being myself on the internet. And that scares the hell out of people of like actually like <laughs> exposing who you are, right? But I'm just like really comfortable, one, being myself, two, I'm happy to be wrong in public, which I think also scares people. The day that you like just kind of, again, you just throw your hands up and you're like, What's the worst that happens? I'm wrong. Okay. Guess what happens when you're wrong in public? You literally say, I was wrong. The information changed. I've changed my mind. And everyone forgets. And it's not so much that like, it's like everyone forgets in like a, uh, a negative way. It's that everyone realizes like, wow, I'm wrong all the time too. It's just that like, I hide being wrong. And I want everyone to have this like pristine view of me. that like, I'm never wrong. And so I'm just like honest about it. Like, hey, I invested in that company. Here's why I did it at the time. Here's the two things that I thought were true that ended up not being true. I lost money. Like, I was wrong. Okay, guess what? Here's 10 other deals that I'm doing now that like, hopefully they work out. And I think that ultimately, like, that's where the world's heading. It's just like pure authenticity. And the internet exposed the fact that like everyone was full of shit. Like whether it was like the big media companies, <laughs> individuals, whatever, like everyone just wanted the world to view them in some light and of what, like, what they controlled. But now the internet like exposed all that. And so the people who are winning on the internet or building large audiences or brands just openly explain what happens, good or bad. And I think people just appreciate the honesty and the transparency and the authenticity. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, man. I just don't have any other way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just made me feel I'm like, am I full of shit? Like, am I afraid of like putting out wrong things or incorrect things or like retracting retracing some of myself retracting some of the things i say uh so I, I respect that i think people probably also trust you more definitely there's like a trust aspect to it but i also think that what it teaches you as after you've done it for enough time is like 
you're more intellectually honest with yourself. You go into things and you basically are saying, hey, I think you know A, B, and C is true. By the way, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong and I get new information, then I have to change my mind. Because I've like exposed these ideas to the public and they're going to hold me accountable. And so like Twitter is ruthless. They don't forget anything. There's people who like, you know, you uh, liked a tweet in 2012, like they will remind you in 2021, <laughs> right? And so like to some degree, it, it, uh, it doesn't feel good when people call you out on bullshit or on like the lack of accuracy of something but it also keeps you honest. And so like, I think that, you know, when people talk about echo chambers, they usually talk about like media consumption or whatever, but like most people just live in echo chambers of like, Oh, all the decisions I made were right. Cause I like ended up in a good place, but nobody's there to like hold them accountable. But, like, dude, what are you talking about? Like these three decisions that, you know, that you made back then, like, you know, you're an idiot. And so I think that just like that raw honesty is really powerful, but you got to have the thick skin to, you know, kind of expose yourself to it. And when you said earlier, like your, your sequential tour you got today, I guess this is the, the place you wanted to be, or you just got excited about investing during the process. And you're like, oh shit, how do I get to that point? Because I think that's a challenge that like, honestly, a lot of people struggle with, including myself at times. Like, what do I really want to be doing right now? I think actually doing the things are probably relatively easy. Yeah. I think for me, it was around investing specifically was like, I knew that I enjoyed kind of early stage companies and like startups and stuff, but I didn't have an idea to go start another company. So I was like, well, like, I don't know, like, hey, this guy's got like an interesting idea or this one's got an interesting idea. Like, rather than like me go start a company, why don't I just like give them some money and then like kind of help them? And then it just, you know, again, built and built and built. And then eventually I realized like, no, you know what I like about businesses? I like the like zero to one aspect of it. Once they get really big and there's like, you know, a hundred people, like, nah, I'm good. Like, uh, I, I don't have time for the, uh, the bureaucracy and the like organizational management and like all that type of stuff. I is like, not only is it boring, it like makes me cringe. Like I like, like get me out of here. Right. Right. I feel like I'm like, like caged in a hundred percent. It's like, Hey, I have more, can we have a meeting about that? Like when they say that it's kind of, it's time. You said you've been writing. Is that, you've been doing that daily for how long now? Three years in May. Three years every day. Five days a week. Yeah. No weekends. I think I've missed two. Dude. I, th- I think I've missed two days. What happened those days? One day actually sounds really stupid. I wrote a whole piece and I included an announcement that someone was supposed to make in it. So it was like ready to go. And then they didn't make the announcement. And so like that's like nine o'clock at night. And I was like, all right, well, <laughs> whatever. I'm not, I'm not gonna rewrite it. Like all day I was like checking, waiting for the announcement, didn't come. And then another day uh, I was traveling and it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I was like, oh man, I didn't write this morning. Like, okay, get them tomorrow. Is that is that like the first thing you do in the morning? You know, one thing I realized too, I hate when people ask, what's your morning routine? I'm like, people can have weird ass morning routines and be very successful. Yeah. So, but I, I'm curious for you and, and how you, you approach it. I basically, I get up, I shower, I go get coffee, and then I sit down and I write. And if I don't write in the morning, I probably wouldn't do it. So like, I have to do it, you know, like first thing. And then I like get on Twitter and just start, <laughs> screwing around on the internet <laughs> well i was gonna say most people like get up they do their email like all this stuff like that's not my priority right like my priority is just screwing around on the internet on twitter because that that's actually like the most valuable activity i do on a daily basis which sounds weird but like by far does that sound weird to you no twitter is what linkedin should have been hmm. right you build a network you can connect with people you can like direct message all these folks whatever 
I got like, you know, what are 700,000 followers on Twitter? It's like pretty much every single person that I want to get to is somewhere in that 700,000 or one degree of separation from there. And then when I conduct email, it's one-to-one usually. So it's like me and you emailing. Oh, that's so interesting. So if I spent a minute doing that, I communicated to one person. But if I spend that same one minute firing off a tweet to 700,000 people, some of these tweets get you know millions of impressions. So it's like on a pure leverage basis, that one minute's actually better spent on Twitter than on email. Now, that's not always true, right? Because there's impo- like level of importance of the communication. The quality, yeah. Yeah. So I still do some of, you know, I do a lot of email, but that's just kind of how I think through like why Twitter is so important. It's like a one-to-many communication that is very much a long game versus email is very much usually a short game. Dude, that's so interesting, man. I think this is probably true for everyone, but on the bicycle, I'm not doing anything. There's no email, there's no podcast, there's no tweets, there's no audiobooks, no YouTube. And so all I do is think. And like, I was like, yo, where, where's this brain been? Like, this brain shit is cool. Like, I'm really in 2021, dude, brains. I think that's what I, I admire and I respect how you're doing with your writing. I'm guessing that's kind of the same process. You're like, what is interesting me this morning? And you know, I read all your emails. That's it. Yeah, it's like you allocate time to think. The thing that it probably makes Twitter the television appearances, the podcast, private meetings I have with people about all this stuff that makes me more effective than most. Most of the things I talk about, I've previously been forced to sit down and write them down and construct a coherent argument, right? So it's like when somebody's like, oh, uh, Bitcoin's going to be banned. Okay, maybe. But here's three examples as to where it wasn't, <laughs> right? Or like where it was banned and what happened. And like, how do I know what happened in Pakistan and Nigeria, whatever? It's because like one morning I sat down and I wrote about, here's all the countries that have banned Bitcoin. And then here's what happened. I went, I looked up the data and I had to like construct this argument. And then probably the one advantage I do have that like is hard for people to, I think like train is I just have like a freakishly good memory for stuff like this. So like I literally could explain to you like the nuances of what happened in Pakistan when they banned Bitcoin. To where people are just like, all right, like that's a little weird. Or I could literally tell you from memory, like almost a day by day analysis of what happened in March 2020 when Bitcoin dropped 50% and then rallied 800% from there. And it's just like, you know, I do it all day. I just think about it. And so I joke all the time and say that a lot of that probably came from the fact that uh, I have four younger brothers and the five of us just argued all the time, like talk shit to each other. It's like the greatest training of all time for everything I do. Go on television, like Kevin O'Leary wants to, you know, chirp. Like I'm like, dude, my brothers will like eat you for lunch. Like I've been training for this moment for, you know, 30 years. (laughs) And so I think that like uh, that environment just naturally forces you to one, like be good at arguing, right? And and, like whether it's in a debate, whether it's writing, whether it's kind of, you know, quick hits like uh, television. But also, too, is if anyone has a sibling that you've ever argued with, just being like, oh, yeah, you're wrong because, like, I'm right. Like, that doesn't fly. So, like, you have to be able to, like, support your argument and bring data. And, like, you know, it's just naturally you end up getting better and better at it. It's practice. Yeah, I was thinking on, on two pieces of that. Like, one, getting feedback and getting challenged generally makes you better. So, like, Mitchell gives me feedback, hurts my feelings. I'm like, well, he's actually probably right on some of this stuff. And then I go fucking do it. And then life is better. And like, I'm stronger, I'm better. I'm like, it's forged. The other thing with the habit is like, one, you made me reflect on like, there's a guy who's like, I want to get like, I think he wanted 10,000 Twitter followers. 
And he did it for two weeks. I'm, I'm not gonna call him out. And then he's like, oh, this is hard. I don't know if I'm gonna do it anymore. And I was just like, dude, it's been two weeks. I think I love hearing the stories like your own where it's like, yo, I've been, I mean, you've been doing the internet stuff and me and you have been doing a long ass time. And you're like, yo, this writing habit, it's been three years. So I, I guess for some of the other people, is it, is there a mindset or is there thoughts that like, hey, yo, just build, go a hundred days, just like commit to a year or like find something you actually want to do for the next three years? Or, or how do you think they could approach it? I always look at it. And a lot of this is because I spend so much time like venture investing. Like I'm very much trained in like a, like a mental framework of exponential growth. And so if you think about, hey, I want to grow my Twitter following, maybe I should grow 10% week every week, right? Okay, well, I have 10 followers today. That means next week I need to get to 11. Like that doesn't sound very enticing to people. But if you grow 10% a week, every week for like two years, you have like a million followers, right? And like, I don't remember the exact math, but like, like you'll have like a, a way more followers than you thought you would have. But it all started yeah. with like that first week of like, you have to get to 11. And then guess what happens? In week two, you have 12, right? Like, <laughs> like, okay, literally what's happening is you're adding like fractions. Like you have to add 1.1 followers in week two. Then you have to add 1.2 followers in week three, right? And people are like, wait, what? But then all of a sudden you get to 100 and now you got to add 10 followers. And then by the time you get to 1,000, you have to add 100 followers a week. And it just starts to compound. Well, what happens when you have 100,000 followers and you've got to add 10,000 followers in a week? It's all momentum. It's all like the exponential growth. And so by the time you get to 100,000 followers, you got to add 10,000 a week. Hey, my guess is that you probably figured out a way to grow your audience to get from zero to 100,000. And so you probably got a pretty good probability of adding 10,000 followers in a week if you now have done the work to get to 100,000. Yeah, I love that, man. I think the the pieces there that are, are really interesting is one, like treating it professionally. You're like, yo, I do, you do have to start now, do fractions, but also like as a business, let me try to actually operate as a business owner, which is like, I'm gonna try to grow this number. Here's how like strategies and actually executing on it. I love that approach to it. And I think the other thing is just like for everyone, including myself, it's a great reminder to hear it from you too. It's like, Black out some time to fucking think. Yeah. Yours, you write it down. It's kind of, you're like thinking in public. You're processing, you know, constructing and then putting that out publicly. And it's like you get kind of a, you, you learn and you get grow an audience and, and build a relationship. Yeah. And you also have to like have thick skin. I, I always tell people like, hey, you want to do this? Like, cool, don't start. It's hard. And like, <laughs> people, people are going to be complete assholes, right? Like literally people have responded before and just been like, you're a fucking idiot, die. Or like, some, you know, some version of that. And you're just like, Okay, like I hope you're having a great Tuesday. Right? Like, like <laughs> it's Dunkin' Donuts Day for them. I'll actually tell you a funny story, and my wife is sitting on the other side of the room, but she's gonna get mad that I tell the story. But it's so good. We every day do this uh, show on YouTube, and so the first one we ever did was during the pandemic. We did it, and she was like, "Oh my god, this is like so cool! It was like so fun! Like, okay, it's on YouTube now. Like, let me go watch it." And then she read the comments. And I forget what the person said, but some random anonymous person in the comments said something and she started to cry. And I literally remember telling her, like, listen, here's the deal. If you are going to read the comments, you have to have thick skin or just don't read the comments. Because in the comments, I think I heard Rogan say this one time. He's like, if you read the comments, if they're good, they give you an ego. If they're bad, they make you feel like shit. It's like nothing good comes out of the comments, <laughs> Right. But some people like to do it. They like to get like a pulse on the audience, whatever, like cool. But just you got to have really, really thick skin because like I literally think somebody was like making fun of her hair. 
or like like it was like some stupid thing that like shouldn't actually matter. But if you just don't on a daily basis get exposed to like people who are assholes, like you're, you're it's very uh, like abrasive. It's very jarring. And so I think that's like the other thing is if you're gonna do any sort of thing on the internet, like you better have thick skin. But you know, uh, last thing on the Twitter stuff, and I, want, I did want to talk to you about crypto. I think you know a little bit about it. You're kind of into it, right? It's going to be big, this crypto thing I've learned. How could someone approach? Because I think one of the things I admire about your stuff too is I think you have a distinct voice. I hate when people say authentic because I'm like, you know what I mean? They're their selves. But I think you haven't, you're like, yo, I'm very strongly opinionated about this. So I, I guess, what do you, would you recommend for people that are like, yo, if you want to you know, become somewhat of an influencer in, the, in these spaces, I guess, how would you recommend them to approach it? I'm thinking about, I'm th- thinking selfishly about me. That was a question for Noah. I think there's two things. Like one is you got to put your opinions out there. And I think people are attracted to the vulnerability, the authenticity, all the stuff we already talked about. So like, you just got to get comfortable. Like, hey, I believe this. I believe this. And like, here's why. The second thing is I, I, I laugh all the time because a lot of folks will come to me and they're like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to become a crypto influencer like you. And I'm like, hey, just so we're clear. The reason why I think people listen, it has nothing to do with like the influence, right? Like to me, like that's like such like a weird thing. No, it's because I've deployed more money into this space than majority of people. I haven't deployed the most, but I've deployed more than most. And so therefore there's like substance that backs it up, right? It's like, oh, this is guy isn't just like sharing his public opinion. Like he went and he put, you know, tens of millions of dollars into a company. Like there's skin in the game, right? And so I think that like when you get into this world of influence, the knock against it is these people have no substance, there's no skin in the game, it's all garbage, whatever. I think where the world is headed is this overlap between people with skin in the game and large audiences. So you see a lot of like venture capitalists now all trying to like build big audiences, or you see founders trying to build big audiences. The people who have the the most substance and also understand how the internet works are going to build the biggest audiences. That's a really interesting point, because I remember when I first saw you, I will say, I was like, Oof, this guy's got an accent, he's with some woman, they're in a kitchen. <laughs> Like talking, like what? What is this stuff? And I didn't like it. I'm gonna be straight. I didn't like it, and now I love it. It just weirded me at first. And I was like, "Who's this guy? He's talking. He's investing a lot of money. I don't think he's invested any money. Just put it. You know, you can anybody can put whatever Twitter bio they want. Like, oh, I was a vice president to Obama's vice president. <laughs> See, like not liking it's one thing, but then some people like go and they like talk shit, whatever. And I just tell them, oh, the haters, like those are just future fans who haven't realized it yet. And then, like, if you take that approach, it's just like, oh, like eventually they like come around to it. And like, you know, in 2018, when I was saying a lot of this stuff, people thought I was nuts. They were like, man, this Bitcoin thing went from 20,000 to 3,000. Like you were literally a fool. And now all of a sudden everyone's like, oh man, like I, I like really like Bitcoin. It's like, okay, maybe you should have liked it in 2018. Like that was a better time to like it than at $60,000. <laughs> One thing I, I like, I always think about is everyone's like, oh, is it too late? Is it too late on the crypto thing? And I've put out some YouTube videos, how I have a few million dollars in it. And like I got in I don't know, 2016 or something like that. And then the market drops. Like you saw, you see yesterday's crash. Yep. I was buying. I was like, yo, this is, this is Noah's Hanukkah. I'm like, yo, all the people that are talking about how much they love it. This is the part like that we all want. But then they're like, no, no, it's not the right time now. And every time, like literally every crash in specifically with this, like, uh, almost entertainment of crypto. I always, that's the first thing that always comes to my mind is like, isn't this the thing that everyone was asking for? One of my, uh, partners in uh, some of the investing activities, uh, always says that, Humans are really good at selling what they're about to need and also buying the thing that they should have bought. So you should have bought Bitcoin at $3,000 in hindsight, right? Should have bought it at 3000 
And then if you're ever going to sell it, you should sell it at uh, $60,000, right? Like buy low, sell high. Instead, humans are really good at, they wait till it drops to 3,000, then they sell it. And then they wait till it goes back to 60,000 and they buy it. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it's just human emotion, right? Like we literally, we are all just emotional beings that frankly get it wrong. You got to fight it. The fight is, that's hard, man. Cause I've definitely, even with the crypto thing, one, you know, AppSumo.com, our main business, it makes, it does really, really well. And I have to remind myself, this is like my fun game and it's entertaining and I believe it's part of the future. But my money maker is like this e-commerce site. I get distracted with it though. Cause I'm like, oh, you know, VeChain's up today. I made like $5,000. And it's like, we do that like in a few hours. Yeah. So I do have to remind myself like, what's the big thing to, to, to focus on? The thing that I tell folks is in financial markets, the best thing to do is just do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. Like, <laughs> like there's like a very strong argument, right? Like when everyone else is greedy, like be super fearful. When everyone else is really fearful, like maybe you should be buying. And so similar to what you just said, like, hey, there's a crash in the Bitcoin market. Like, that's probably a pretty good time to uh, to buy. I bought. Like, I don't know. Again, by the way, like, who knows what's going to happen in the future? I have no clue. But like, nothing changed, in my opinion, on my long-term thesis. So like, if I was excited at $60,000 and it drops to $50,000, should not I be more excited? It's kind of like a store. Like, when they yeah. put stuff on sale, you should be buying it. But in finance, like, it goes on sale and then people... Like, oh, take it back. Like, like, like I want to return it. <laughs> like, what? When do you think there's the point where the people are going to stop denying? Like, that it's going to be, a re- like, it's here. They're like, nah, dude, it's not going to last. It's, gonna, it's like, one, it's been 11 years. Seems like kind of, it might, it might actually happen. There are people who still think the internet is stupid. There's not, <laughs> there's not a lot of them. There's a much, much less today than there was in the 90s. But there are still some people who think the internet is stupid. Sure. There are people who still don't have smartphones, who have dumb phones, or who have no mobile phone. The world's just a big place. And so even if 0.1% of people think the internet is stupid, like that's still like you know, a million people. It's <laughs> a lot of people. Right? Like, it's crazy. And so I think that we'll never get 100%. But I do think that it's rapidly changing. Like, you're seeing people capitulate. And I always laugh and just say, like, you know, everyone capitulates. Like at some price, people are like, oh, damn, like, okay, this thing's not going to zero. Like, all right, maybe I still don't like it. Maybe I think all the people with laser eyes and memes on the internet are mean, but like, it's not going to go to zero. Okay. Well, it's funny. uh, In high school, my friend's dad was like, oh, I would never do online banking. Like I would never use an ATM. I only go inside the branch. This is 2004. Yeah, dude, banks online all the time now, right? He probably owns a bunch of crypto. But here's what's crazy. I think the stat is still true. When ATMs came out, everyone was like, oh my God, ATMs are going to like kill the bank branch, right? And bank tellers are screwed. Like they're all going to be out of business. Today, there's more bank tellers than ever. Why? It's because the ATM machines actually opened up access to the banking system and got more people to use banks. And therefore, what it does is it actually creates more demand for banks, which means that more people go into the bank branch, which means they need more bank tellers. So it's like, these are complex systems, right? It's not binary, like, oh, there's an automated teller, which means that all the bank tellers get like out of a job. It's like, no, actually, the exact opposite happened. And so I, I always am uh, very weary of simplistic analysis of like, A happens, then B happens. So, well, you know, I don't know, in a complex system, can that like really be that simple? And so, you know, the Bitcoin argument is like a great one. Like, people are like, the dollar fails, Bitcoin wins. It's like, maybe. But like, what happens if just like we go from like 180 currencies to like 181 currencies? 
like that seems like a much more realistic thing than like you know and by the way like that could be like the 181st currency or whatever of bitcoin ends up being like the, the best one the, the one that's most adopted but that doesn't mean all the other ones like go away i don't know i just think a lot about like the world's complex it's not black and white and so you know we're human just like hey maybe we don't actually understand that much and if we just directionally are right and you make investments based on just having to be directionally right, then like you'll probably do okay. What was your insight when you saw all this stuff that kind of sparked it? I missed it. 2014 was the first time I ever heard about it. I was working at Facebook and somebody told me about it. They didn't even tell me about it. They were talking about it. And I turned to an engineer who is very smart and I thought was very smart. And I said, you know, what, what is this? Is this real? He was just like, it's stupid. Okay. <laughs> Went on with my day. Didn't even Google it. Like, you know, that was dumb. And then in 2016, uh, somebody came back to me and pitched me on uh, mining facilities. And so that's when I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like this is basically like a data center. I understood the data center business and it was like, huh, it's like better than data center. Like, okay, fine. And I literally sold my Facebook stock and I put 50% in the bank. And I took 50% of it and I bought mining equipment. Risk management hasn't always been my strong suit. Concentration has kind of been a, a reoccurring theme in my life. Oh, that's interesting. Why? I don't think people are as focused in, in a lot of things, including myself. I think we like the idea of it. But and I think financially as well, it's like once I've made a lot of my money, I'm a pussy about it. Like I'm like, oh, this dollar's like, please don't go anywhere. Like I, I need to see you. I want to swim in you. Like I'm scared of it going away. My favorite conversation to have, especially with young uh, investors, is like, what are your best ideas? And they'll tell me like, Oh, I have like 10 good ideas. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> like your number one idea is like an okay idea. And the rest of them are like <laughs> a little bit worse than that, right? So it's like, by the way, like your best idea compared to your 10th best idea, you should probably put way more weight and like in terms of putting weight, like put more of your investment in your best idea than your 10th. It's like what a lot of people do is because they're constantly thinking of risk management and diversification, they'll say, hey, I have 10 ideas. I'm going to put 10% of my portfolio in each one of the ideas on equal weighting. But if you're being offensive rather than defensive, your best idea, the one you have the most conviction and the one you've done the most work on, you should actually put more money in that one than in the 10th idea, right? And so like, maybe it's that's not interesting. It's not that binary. Like maybe you should say, okay, cool. I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. So like maybe that's in my three best ideas and I'll split, you know, kind of equal across that or I'll wait a little bit, you know, differently, whatever. But it's just like, how many good ideas can you really have? Like I had one good idea for years, Bitcoin. That was it. And like all these other people were like, oh, I did this and I did this and I did this and look at this stock and this. And I'm like, cool. Like, I, I, I don't know. But like this one thing I'm like really, really positive on. And it's just because I did the work. And like, I've got deep, deep conviction on this one thing. And so I can either say like, okay, cool. I have conviction on this one thing. Let me put like some percentage in this and then go find like five other things I've got deep conviction in. Or I can just say, no, like I have the confidence that I'm right on this. And so like, let me go put majority of my portfolio in this one thing. And by the way, you got to be willing to like be wrong, not only in public, but like if I was wrong, I was going to lose a lot of money. But like, if you're right, you make a lot of money. And so it's just to your point, like people become very risk averse and they start to focus on downside rather than upside as they make more money as well, which makes sense. Like, hey, I had no money. Then like, let's say you've got a million dollars. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I don't want to lose a million dollars. Like, this is the uh, million dollars that like, I never want to go back to having more money. Sure. But like, if you have that mentality, like you'll never get to $10 million or $100 million because you're constantly worried about losing the money. 
Whereas I think there's like some very special slash potentially sick people in the world who are like, <laughs> oh my God, I have some money. I'm going to go bet it all. <laughs> right. So like Masayoshi son at SoftBank, Elon Musk. Oh my God. Yes. Right. Like, I mean, you just go down the line. Like we all know who they are. And guess what? Like many of those people had no money. They became some of the richest people in the world. Then they like lost all the money and they became the richest people in the world again. Like, how do you become the richest person in the world twice? Well, it's because like you constantly shoot for the fences, like you swing for the fences, right? And so I think uh, Mike Novogratz, who's a former partner at uh, Fortress and one of the co-founders, like he's talked about it. I think he was like a billionaire, then he wasn't, then he was a billionaire again. I think he then was not a billionaire again. And then now he's like a billionaire again for like the third time. Like some people were like, yo, that's crazy. And I'm like, man, you know what that tells me? No matter how much he won or lost, he kept the same like intellectual curiosity and like kind of offensive mindset. Like that's really, really special. There's not very many people who could do that. Imagine if you're a billionaire and then you become not a billionaire. A lot of people would go into like defense mode, but he went into offense and then have it happen again. Like by the second time, you got to think like, <laughs> like, hey man, like if I only got a hundred million left, like maybe I'm, I'm good here. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to go all in buy pomp on BitCloud. All in. All my money. Everything. Good idea. Okay idea. Great idea. What I would say to that is uh, you are your own person. You can make whatever decision <laughs> you want. But uh, I have no plans as of now to uh, uh, redeem my profile. I have the same. Maybe that changes in the future. Look, I think it's a super interesting experiment. It's pretty compelling in terms of the adoption that it's gotten. So, you know, let's see what happens. But I think that it's one of these things where the market's going to determine whether it's successful or not. There's a lot of data points that are very bullish on why it's working, right? In terms of people adopting it, claiming their profiles, third-party developers building on top of it. Like, just there's a whole bunch of stuff that's happening. The big question is like, can they sustain it? Well, I guess one thing with you is that you have so many, you know, a lot of us, we have so many things coming at us. And plus all the new crypto coins, like how do you filter, you know, obviously intelligence, but how do you filter like, oh shit, should I be paying attention to this? What about that? And then, you know, for yourself, uh, what are you most excited about? In terms of all the different kind of things. I ignore everything. And then the things that make it through end up being like really high signal. Like I literally, I mean, like on a daily basis, there's like people who come to me like all day long. They're like, look, look at this, look at this, look at this. I'm just like, ah, whatever, like, sure. I think some people take this like approach of uh, every single thing that somebody pitches to them, they go and spend all this time on it. And what I found over the years is just like, I just sit back and wait for something to like really catch my attention. And if I'm like intrigued by it and excited, I'm like, I just like follow that. But if you start from the default of everything has value, then you're just going to literally like be chasing rabbits, right? Like you're literally just going to be chasing and chasing and chasing. And like, I just don't want to live a life like that. So instead I just kind of like sit back and like, by the way, I'll miss stuff. ThorChain. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about this one. Yeah, I'm in Rune. All right. I'm in Rune. So a very good friend of mine, told me to buy it at eight cents. So like 15 bucks now. I didn't buy it. Why? Because I was just ignoring everything. And so like some people would be like, oh my God, you're an idiot. Like you should have done that. Like look at how much money you didn't make because you didn't buy it. Sure. I also have another friend who bought it at eight cents. Well guess what he did? He sold it at 36 cents. <laughs> right. So like <laughs> like buying it and then holding it all the way to $15 is very different than buying it and, you know, selling it at 36 cents. So it's just like, you know, who knows what I would have done, but like, yes, buying something that was low and then going up in price, sure, would have been amazing. But like, you, you just can't uh, get caught up on like the misses. There's a million things. You know, at one point, Tesla was outperforming Bitcoin. But does that mean that all the Bitcoiners should have like went and sold their Bitcoin and bought Tesla? No. 
So just like chill out. What stuff has gone through recently for you? I mean, Bitcoin is what I spend the majority of my time on. BlockFi uh, is a company I've invested a ton of money in and have really, really deep conviction in. And then uh, let's say the other thing that I'm spending a lot of time thinking through is uh, decentralized finance type of Bitcoin. Like I just think that it's mispriced in the market. So everyone is uh, yelling and screaming and excited about uh, decentralized finance on Ethereum. There are certain things that are working. There are certain things that are not working. And I think that everyone kind of just like wrote off the fact that decentralized finance wouldn't happen on top of Bitcoin. But now that you can do smart contracts on top of Bitcoin, you've got things like Sovereign. Uh, you've got things like Stacks. Uh, you've got things like RSK and, and all this stuff. And so I think what ends up happening is the market has completely written off something that actually seems to be working. And they've probably over-rotated on the Ethereum-based decentralized finance. Like everyone's just like, oh, everything is valuable. And it probably won't be. And so again, it's not a binary world where like Bitcoin DeFi wins and Ethereum DeFi loses. Like, no, they actually probably coexist. But like, that's a perfect type of like market structure bet that I like where like something's being mispriced that I think is undervalued. And so therefore, if you go and you invest in that theme, as the market then rotates and realizes what you think you realize, then like you should benefit from it. If we we're going to give away $1,000 to people to subscribe, make sure they check out your stuff. I'm curious which one you want, where you want us to tell them to, uh, to follow you. What would you have them do with a thousand bucks? Give it to somebody else. Yeah. I think the world could just benefit from people helping each other a little bit more. What should we tell them to go check you out? Like on YouTube, podcast, Substack? Twitter's fine. Yeah. I'm obsessively tweeting all the time. So if I'm doing anything, including breathing, you'll know about it on uh, Twitter. <laughs> That's uh, So twitter.com slash A Pompliano. You know Andrew Chen? Yes. Yeah, he's one of my best friends. So he's upstairs. He wanted me to talk to you about Substack, but we don't have time to talk about Substack stuff. I am a big, big, big believer. Uh, I was one of the, I don't know, first 200, 500 people, whatever it was, users on it. And uh, I think that not only one, just the tech works and it's great, but uh, the part to me that's so fascinating is they're like structurally changing the way that journalists communicate in terms of just like unbundling news organizations and giving people the ability to. Uh, here direct. I, when you change the incentive mechanism, I actually think it improves the quality of the journalism, which is, yeah, as has already been beaten to death, like more important than ever for a variety of reasons, everything from politics to just, you know, power, free speech, etc. So that to me is like a, an absolute no brainer uh, of a platform. Dude, that was awesome. Right. Well, I'll send you off. I'll, I'll hit you up on a uh, text and then uh, I'll send you a postcard from the road. I would love that. All right, fellas. Thanks so much. All right, amigo. Have a great day. Have a great day. You too, man. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. If you're interested in learning more about Pomp, go check him out on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash A-Pompliano. A-P-O-M-P-L-I-A-N-O. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's ride a buck across America together. It's a bad idea. Before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Also, if you are a creator or you want to be a creator, go promote your software, books, or courses on appsumo.com slash sell. It is brand new. Creators are earning over now $50,000 a day. Yes, you heard me right. I think it's one of the best new opportunities for makers out there. That's appsumo.com slash sell. Finally, a couple of shout outs to my amazing team. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for doing all the editing of these episodes. Mitchell, Jeremy, Huber, Jonathan, Sasa, and Jen from the Dork Team. I love y'all. Finally, shout out to Alexander, Max, Kellen, Amanda, and JR at AppSumo. They made this amazing guide, The Ultimate Guide to Buying and Selling Businesses. Great work on this one. Sumo links are going to love it. Plus, if you're interested, go check it out. It's free on AppSumo. 
Have a lovely day. What's your favorite cartoon? Does anyone make it this far in the episode anymore? I feel like I don't ever hear from you guys this far. But anyways, I still like you, dog.